Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. You might want to think about this the next time you go grocery shopping, stopping to get some milk or eggs or ice cream. Yes, the prices are going up. But something else is rising, too. You just can't see it. It's a group of gases that slip up into the atmosphere and trap heat, contributing to global warming. The funny thing, or maybe it's not that funny, is that those same gases were hailed years ago as key to avoiding destroying the ozone layer. It's the kind of thing that's hard to put a price on, but there is certainly a cost, along with ways to fix the problem. Singer-songwriter Tamara Lindman had a moment of inspiration as she stood in front of a store display of exotic imported fruits and vegetables, and it led her to create music reaching into the heart of her own grief and frustration about climate change. Her music has led to some surprising conversations. And when climate disaster far away comes home, the urge to help is powerful. For the Somali diaspora in Canada, that means sending money to those who are struggling to survive, even as they know drought means more fundamental change is needed to help farmers adapt to changing conditions. And last week, we told you about hopes of a global effort to understand the role of oceans in absorbing carbon. This week, news of a global disagreement about whether to mine the ocean floor for minerals considered critical to getting away from fossil fuels. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Please scan your items. Scan your next item or press pay now. I don't know why, but that sound makes me anxious to get my next item out when it comes to shopping for groceries. I know a lot of people are trying to be more climate conscious, but on top of food packaging, food waste and food transport emissions, there's one source of greenhouse gases that you probably haven't thought much about, and that is refrigerants. Well, CBC Science and Environment senior reporter Emily Chung has thought a lot about it, and she's doing something about it too. Hi, Emily. Hi, Laura. Welcome back. I haven't talked to you in a while. You, you've been away on leave? Yeah, I took a little bit of time off to spend some time on other things in my life. and uh, But I was still thinking about climate while I was off. And one of the things I did was some volunteering. I volunteered for and attended the local eco-fair. And while I was there, there's like a whole bunch of vendors and booths and stuff. And I came across the table for a group called Drawdown Toronto, And they were looking for volunteers to go into grocery stores and catalog what refrigerants they were using. So I signed up. Well, that sounds like a bit of a spy mission. Okay, (laughs) who's the group? And why did it want the volunteers to do this? Well, they're a local nonprofit group affiliated with something called the Drawdown Project. And that project produced a book and a list of solutions to keep climate change below 1.5 Celsius or 2 Celsius, including how much each intervention could be expected to reduce emissions. And some of the most effective solutions involved cutting emissions from refrigerants called HFCs or hydrofluorocarbons, which are really powerful greenhouse gases. Most grocery stores in Canada use those refrigerants in huge quantities to keep things like vegetables, milk, and frozen dinners fresh and cold. And leaks of those HFCs are a huge source of emissions from supermarkets. Drawdown Toronto and BC Drawdown wanted to raise awareness about this, so they teamed up with a U.S. group called the Environmental Investigation Agency that's creating a global map of grocery store refrigerants. So what did volunteering involve? Well, after the eco-fair, I and other volunteers got an email, and we were each assigned to a grocery store. And I went to a shopper's drug mart a few kilometers from my house, which worked out because I actually needed to do some shopping there. And once I was there, I looked in the fridges and freezers for a little sticker that tells you what kind of refrigerant they used. And I took pictures of them using my phone. 
Then I emailed them to the Environmental Investigation Agency's Climate Friendly Refrigerants Project so it could be added to the map. So you took pictures in the store with your phone. I, I mean, Emily, that actually sounds a little suspicious. Didn't anybody stop you? I mean, I did see some employees look at me a little funny, but uh, <laughs> but they didn't actually stop me. But if they had, I would have been happy to explain what I was doing. Okay. Well, what kind of refrigerant was Shoppers Drug Mart using? Well, according to that sticker I found in the fridge and freezer, they were using an HFC refrigerant called R404A, which has a global warming potential of 3,922. So, Global warming potential is a measure of how much a type of gas traps heat in the atmosphere, you know, causing global warming, and they're all compared to carbon dioxide. So what this means is a kilo of R404A traps as much heat as 4,000 kilos of carbon dioxide. All right. I, I don't, not quite sure what the math entails in terms of figuring out how much damage that's doing, but it sounds like a lot. It's a lot. So that's why Canada has signed an international agreement, the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, to cut HFC use by 85% by 2036 compared to levels between 2011 and 2013. Well, our listeners actually, they might remember the recent feature report we had on the Montreal Protocol, and I seem to remember that HFCs were largely brought in to replace other refrigerants that were seen and were harmful to the ozone layer. That's right. And HFCs are more ozone-friendly. They just cause a lot of global warming. And they're still used by most supermarkets in Canada, the U.S., and many other countries. It makes it sound like you can't win. Is, it, is this something shoppers should be concerned about? Well, environmental groups think so. The Environmental Investigation Agency went into grocery stores and shot infrared camera footage showing HFCs are leaking into the atmosphere from supermarket fridges and freezers. And sometimes that's what happens when a customer opens the door of a supermarket case in the frozen food section. This is Avipsa Mahapatra, climate campaign lead at the Environmental Investigation Agency. One of the things I thought that, you know, we all do when we care for the climate is we try our best to, you know, take our tote bag um, and maybe take a bike to our local grocer and make sure that when we are at the grocery store or at the supermarket, we try to make the best choice in terms of is this organic, is this green, is it flying from very far away? Unbeknownst to a lot of people, all of those actions could be undone by the simple opening of a refrigerator, for example, or a freezer in the supermarket and taking a pizza box out. So her nonprofit group found that U.S. supermarkets that they investigated are leaking an average of 400 kilos of HFCs every year in each store. So we're looking at emissions that are equivalent to about, you know, more than 300 cars. If you do the math, it doesn't take long for anyone to understand Holy freak, we shouldn't be using a refrigerant that is a very high GWP in the first place. And by GWP, she's referring to global warming potential, which we had talked about before. So holy freak, each grocery store is actually leaking the equivalent emissions of 300 cars a year? Yeah, and there are more than 60,000 supermarkets in the U.S., so those emissions could be equivalent to 18 million cars. So that is alarming, but is it really a lot? I mean, how does it compare to other emissions from, from food, for example? Well, that depends on how you look at it. I talked to Shelley Miller, a professor who studies the environmental impact of the food system at the University of Michigan. She says emissions from refrigerants might be small compared to other food system emissions, like emissions from food waste. But that's also just because the food system has such a big impact. Refrigerants themselves can be incredibly powerful greenhouse gases. Um, and so they are a category of emissions that uh, you can make fairly small changes and have a relatively large impact just because the chemicals themselves that we're using right now have such large global warming potentials. But they're also an opportunity to make a big difference because HFCs are short-lived greenhouse gases. When you think about buying a refrigerator, particularly on sort of these industrial refrigerators, they're expected to last 20 or 30 years. And so it's decisions that we're making right now that's going to impact emissions potentially 30 years from now. And so we want to be very careful about what we're actually installing now and in the short term uh, to reduce uh, longer term greenhouse gas emissions. But if those grocery stores aren't using HFCs, what would they use to refrigerate their food? 
Well, there are greener options. Um, they're called natural refrigerants because they're chemicals that exist in nature. And those include CO2, ammonia, and propane. We all know CO2 is a greenhouse gas, but compared to HFCs, all these chemicals are considered ultra-low global warming potential refrigerants. Environmental groups want supermarkets to switch to these as quickly as possible. That's why they're mapping what refrigerants supermarkets are using around the world. All right. So globally, look at that map. How is Canada doing compared to other countries? Well, I should mention that so far the map I contributed to of Canada is mostly blank, except for Toronto and BC, where those two groups are helping out. So it's not a very representative map. But what we do see suggests we aren't doing great. Most of the dots in Canada, including the one I added, are red, not green, meaning most of the stores use HFCs. The Environmental Investigation Agency actually released its first ever regional report card for Canada last fall and found none of Canada's largest food retailers, Costco, Loblaws, Metro, Sobeys, and Walmart, got a passing grade. To their credit, all of them had at least some stores using natural refrigerants. Sobeys had the most, at 9%. Still, we've known for a while that this is a problem, and Canada was supposed to officially start phasing out HFCs in 2019. So this isn't going as quickly as you might hope. Okay, what did the groceries change say about this? Well, we did reach out to the five chains mentioned in the report. And as of our deadline, we only got a statement from Loblaws, which owns Shoppers Drug Mart, the store that I went to. And it says it managed to cut its greenhouse gas emissions 30% by 2020, largely by reducing refrigerant leaks. It says it's been cutting the amount of refrigerant it uses, finding leaks faster, and using refrigerants that have a lower emissions intensity, and it plans to continue with that strategy as part of its plan to reach net zero by 2040. I also talked to Michael Zabinet, who is the Vice President of Sustainability for the Retail Council of Canada. He said big grocery store chains do know this is a problem. They're quite aware of um, you know, the impact of these emissions and they're starting to work and have already been working for the last several years on reducing those emissions. But why isn't this transition happening more quickly? Well, the issue is that natural refrigerants aren't exactly like HFCs. They have their own issues that require extra training. For example, ammonia is toxic and propane is flammable, and they often require a completely new refrigeration system. So CO2 is the natural refrigerant of choice for most supermarkets because it's non-toxic and its system works a lot like an HFC system. But it operates at much higher pressures, so it needs different piping and different valves. So you can't just do a swap of different pieces overnight like you do when part of an existing HFC system breaks down. So how would a grocery store even make the switch? I'm told it's easiest if you have the space to build a new system alongside while the old system is still running. Otherwise, you might have to shut down the store during the retrofit. And that's really hard on both the grocer itself and the community it serves. And obviously, this isn't just a logistical problem. Here's Michael Zabany again. Refrigerant projects are typically quite expensive. They can be challenging. And that's probably the biggest barrier, uh, the need to pay for higher capital costs to either upgrade the equipment so that it can handle natural refrigerants or buy new equipment. The Environmental Investigation Agency's Avipsa Mahapatra says that's true, so her group is focusing on brand new stores more than retrofits and wants the public to help put the pressure on. There is no excuse for any supermarket today to build a new store that still contains HFCs. That is just simply foolish. That makes no business sense, and they've clearly not seen the writing on the wall that these gases are on their way out, and they will have to change out their systems soon. So if it's a new store that is being built in your community, it is our job as citizens, as you know, residents of that community to make sure that that is not an HFC store. Well, what about just stopping the existing equipment from leaking? Wouldn't that be cheaper? In theory, it could be, but it's not that easy. Supermarket fridges might look a bit like your fridge at home with a door and rows of shelves and stuff, but they're pretty different. At home, your fridge is a sealed unit with less than five kilos of refrigerant, so it's unlikely to leak. I talked to Morgan Smith, who's with the North American Sustainable Refrigeration Council. That's a group that's partnered with industry to help enable the transition to natural refrigerants. She says the supermarket systems behind and underneath the cases of food are massive. Each store will have kilometers of piping, thousands of valves, and literally a ton or more of refrigerant. 
with a supermarket refrigeration system, it's so large and so complex with so many different points of connection that those systems are inherently leaky. And so they leak about 25% of their refrigerant charge every year. And because HFCs are such powerful greenhouse gases, that's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, it is possible to detect, track, and reduce leaks, which is something the Environmental Investigation Agency recommends. And that's something that some chains, such as Loblaws, say they're doing. In Canada, though, the group found that so far, only Sobeys publicly reports its annual refrigerant leak rate. Well, okay, but the obvious question is, should government be doing something? Is there a role here for government to, to get on to these emission leaks? Well, as it turns out, the federal government will start to offer carbon offset credits for projects that cut refrigerant emissions, including those in supermarkets. Environment and Climate Change Canada says they'll go into effect in the next few months. And once that happens, companies will be able to apply to get credits for projects that started as far back as January 1st, 2017. Michael Zabonet with the Retail Council of Canada says that will help cover some of the capital costs. And he thinks incentives like that will help. I think the biggest incentive is there's consumer pressure, there's investor pressure leading to the setting of the net zero goals and change is already starting to happen. And then, of course, there are the federal regulations brought in to comply with the international agreement on HFCs. Those will start to ban the manufacture and import of certain equipment containing HFCs with a global warming potential above a specific limit. So hopefully we will see fewer emissions because of these new rules, but it sounds like there is a real role for shoppers like you and me to actually make a change. Avipsa Mahapatra thinks ordinary shoppers can also make a difference by adding their local stores to the climate-friendly supermarket map, being more aware, and putting pressure on grocery store chains. She says this is a really low-hanging fruit of climate action, which could make a big difference. And Morgan Smith at the North American Sustainable Refrigeration Council has a similar perspective. The more people that are aware of this topic, the more resources and support there are to actually enable this transition. What I will say is for the supermarkets, if they could snap their fingers and not leak refrigerant or use all these what we consider future-proof refrigerants, they would do it. The cost is so challenging for them. So I do think that it helps the more awareness there is. What everyone I talked to emphasized is that this is actually a really big deal for climate change, and we should all be paying attention and trying to get solutions in place. Emily, this has been so interesting, and I, you've taught me a lot um, by doing this. And so thank you for your, um, uh, I won't call it a spy mission, <laughs> for telling us all about the refrigerants. Thanks, Laura. Payment approved. Please take your items and your receipt. Now, whether it is grocery shopping, education, politics, or art, climate change intersects with every aspect of our lives. And on this show, we like to connect with the people shaping the conversations about our warming world. And that includes musicians. We can still walk out on the street and buy champagne grapes, strawberries and lilies and November rain. It never occurred to us to have to pay. That's a taste of endless time by the weather station. It's from the group's 2022 album, How Is It That I Should Look at the Stars, which was released by Matitude Music LLC, Fat Possum Records. Singer, songwriter, and the band's frontwoman, Tamara Lindman, joins me now. Hello. Hi. Um, listening to that song, and particularly that part of the song, it describes the pleasures of what I think people would suggest is a good life. Champagne grapes, strawberries, lilies in November. But there's also that sense that that, that so-called good life is changing. Um, and I understand those realities kind of collided for you at a neighborhood fruit stand. Can you tell me about that moment? <laughs> you know, I can't remember the exact moment, but I, you know, at some point, I think I was standing by College Fruit and Flower on College Street, um, which always has a beautiful cornucopia of fruits and flowers. And just thinking how... This is something that I utterly take for granted, that I can get all of these out-of-season 
uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and flowers just down the street from my house at any moment. And I started thinking about the architecture that upholds that, all of the flights and trucks uh, coming from across the country, you know, even, you know, we we see oranges that are from Chile or South Africa um, on our stands. And, you know, I thought about the climate crisis, as I often do, and realized, you know, this is something that is, you know, fragile and, and may not be something that will be there for my entire life. You've been writing about climate change for a while. This isn't the first song. But what mm-hmm. what was it that first inspired you to tackle it in your music? Well, I didn't think I would. I didn't think I was. What What happened was in late 2018, I sort of went through a big climate awakening, as many people did and as many people have, where even though that that knowledge had been with me my whole life and I'd always felt this sort of deep existential dread about it, I, at the end of 2018, I really turned to face it and I really became obsessed with it actually and became one of those people who's ranting on Facebook and talking about it to everyone who will listen. I, I suddenly became just really obsessed with the emotions of it and and the facts of it and I I just was reading about it all the time. Um, but you obviously channeled all of it in into your songwriting. Was it, I, I don't even know if you know the answer to this, was it a way to work through your feelings? Was it an exorcism? What, what, why was it important for you to channel the feelings into your songwriting? Of course it was important because anything that big needs to be expressed and that's what art is there to do, right? You You have to get your feelings out when you're an artist that's just how you process things so um you know when i look back of course i wrote all these songs and of course i needed to express those things i don't know you know i think it it really helped me for a while i felt um especially when the record came out and suddenly everyone wanted to talk to me about climate change which i could not have foreseen in 2018 that suddenly people would be coming up to me wanting to talk to me about climate change. Like, that that was shocking. But having that experience of releasing the music and being in, it being in the world, and, you know, that actually made me feel a lot of um, relief in terms of my personal feelings and that I felt less alone. I felt um, less crazy. <laughs> <laughs> For a while, I was really struggling with people would just come up to me and start talking about, like, all the things they had done to lower their carbon footprint. And I was like, that's wonderful. But, you know, I'm a touring musician. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> you want it. I, yeah, good for you. I'm proud of you. Thank you. But like, I'm not, you know, like almost like a strange confession or something. Um, <laughs> it was strange. I mean, I just think we're so unaccustomed to talking about it. So we don't know what to say. You know, even I don't know what to say. You're making it almost um, sound like a whispered conversation that they found Well, that's somebody. how it feels. I mean, <laughs> that's how it's felt. Like, I, I really, part of why I started, you know, like one of the first things I did was I began this event of like talking about climate and, and combining that with music because I just, I had lived my adult life in a big city where people talk about politics a lot. And yet I found that people were just so silent on this issue and and they aren't anymore but they they really were and and whenever i would bring it up there was like this awkward silence <laughs> and anxiousness that shows up in people and i just wanted to to break that apart even if even if the conversation was awkward or strange or confusing i i think just opening it up was important to me but is was that something you were hoping to provoke in 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 your audience with your songwriting yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, my songs are not like overtly like, you know, greenhouse gases are warming the planet. You know, <laughs> like I didn't what I thought would happen was, you know, they're they're pretty, you know, the, the record ignorance is like pretty poppy and like pretty approachable. And I thought, you know, it'll go out in the world and the songs will be catchy. <laughs> and then and then people will kind of be singing them and be, and be like, wait, you know, what does this mean? Like, and then they'll start thinking and maybe there'll be some resonance there. Um, I thought that, you know, I was tapping into some emotions that I think are really universal right now. All of these emotions of like sort of cognitive dissonance and dread and confusion and sadness and 
and and I was right that those those feelings were really universal and and I think that's why people really resonated with the record so much. Well, it's obviously but, had some impact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like I found since because I said, you know, climate was a big part of the emotions of the record, I it, this whole other thing happened where people have told me that they really felt a lot of permission in the record of like being able to feel their climate feelings that they had denied, you know, because I think that's the most common that was the most common thing that people would feel climate, you know, what we now call climate grief and climate anxiety, but they didn't, they wouldn't give it that name or they wouldn't acknowledge that they did. That's one thing. Um, but then there's also the question of taking that and, and perhaps translating it into action. Uh, I, I'm wondering what, what role you think musicians and and their music can play in climate action. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hopeful for so many things. I think like my record is really, you know, more about emotions and, and, you know, like, I guess, I guess my more oblique hope would be that if, if someone can acknowledge that they feel something about climate, they might be able to, you know, open up the article and read about it and, and show up to a rally or a protest. Um, you know, I think music could do many things if we had the right music. I think like, you know, we're still lacking like a really good climate protest song that can be sung at you know, at an event and and chanted or something. I, I don't feel like we have that yet, but I'm sure, you know, somebody will write it. And you sort of touched on this already, but I'm just wondering, what are your emotions like now compared to five years ago when, when you, by your own admission, started to awaken to the realities of climate change? Um, You know, it's it's tough because I think, like, I experienced this uh, so much momentum and um you know in 2019 2020 i felt so grateful to finally be involved and finally be showing up and going going to protests and rallies even though you know it can feel hopeless you know you feel like you're doing something and i i was feeling there was this momentum happening um in the movement. And I felt really proud and really excited to see what happened next. But, you know, the last couple of years with with COVID and, you know, the way that priorities have kind of shifted away from climate yet again, I've been I've been finding it really difficult, um, to be honest. And, and it's hard not to feel some of those existential feelings kind of creep back in because I think I really I really had some hope for a couple of years there that that we were going to make the big shift we needed to. And I think like knowing, having done all of this research and realized how how close the solutions are and how possible it would be to decarbonize our society. Now that I know that, it it makes it harder for me to handle the sort of delay and 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 the confusion and the misinformation that still is so prominent. I think maybe I'm gearing up for another round of of action, but I think there's that feeling when you you feel that like we really tried and it didn't, you know, it didn't happen. But you know, I I definitely I I have to you know try to pick myself up and return to you know Rebecca Solnit. I think uh, who's a wonderful writer who talks so eloquently about climate. She she talks a lot about how sometimes political movements like seem to fizzle out and you don't know where they're going, but then something massive changes five years later because there was movement, even if you didn't see it. And so I'm hoping that that's where we're at right now. I think maybe you need to put pen to paper or cursor (laughs) cursor to computer and write that protest song that you've been looking for. Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps, yeah. to do something, yeah. Uh, Tamara Lindemann, in the meantime, thank you for your music and and thank you for your thoughtfulness. Yeah, thank you so much. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. 
In Somalia, three years of drought exacerbated by climate change have brought the country to the brink of famine. Millions of people are struggling to survive and some are dying. It's also playing a big part in the skyrocketing cost of living for many families as food and other necessities grow increasingly expensive. And all of that has an impact on Somali Canadians. What I've heard from my family and friends and just the community back home is that this drought is nothing like they've seen so far. It is very difficult. I, I don't even watch TV nowadays because to see the suffering of those children and, and, and elderly people, it's, it's not easy at all for all of us. We, we are here to support. We want to help out. That's the voice of Jibril Ibrahim, who is the president of the Somali-Canadian Cultural Society of Edmonton. Before him, you heard Hibak Warsame, who is the project coordinator with Medenta Community Services in Toronto. And you heard Jibril mention a desire to help out his community abroad. That's a feeling shared by the Somali diaspora around the world. Those living in wealthy nations, 65,000 of them in Canada, often send regular payments or remittances to loved ones in Somalia. Uh, even last week, I have sent three times to, you know, a number of people that needed support and help. A minimum of, of $100 for each is, uh, you know, I'm talking about three to $500 a month uh, for, for just myself. And then my, my wife also, you know, she has some of her family back in Somalia. Then we have to also send additional money you know, to those families as well. Jibril and Hibak agree that since the drought, there's more demand for remittance payments. I also send money for my own paycheck and I group it together with those of my family members to send back home. So on an individual basis, I would say around $100 to $150 USD. Generally speaking, those remittances would be used for food, for water, electricity, for schooling costs as well, just so, for day-to-day life. Right, yeah. So f- nothing nothing fancy, just, just basically Nothing living. fancy, exactly. And that's what's so heartrending about it. In the past, for example, if we were sending as a whole 100 to $150 US, that number has increased from around 300 to 350 USD as a family, just sending it back home. This money, it makes up a big part of Somalia's economy. The country receives more than $1 billion in remittances per year. Now, of course, there are many factors to contend with in Somalia beyond our warming climate. Al-Shabaab, which the government of Canada lists as an Islamist terrorist group, has for decades destabilized Somalia. It's a complex reality, and Hibak wants Canadians and our government to pay attention. What we're seeing here in Toronto and Canada, um, especially in in our fundraising efforts, we're not seeing that the politicians or the general Canadian public is aware much about the drought that's taking place in Somalia, as we're not seeing it really represented in Canadian media as much as the Somali community would have hoped. The Somali public in Canada, however, like Jabir was mentioning, are very aware of the issue and have been supporting the families since the start of the drought. Um, Through the Somalian media, we've been updated in Canada about the famine and the drought and what the current situation is on the ground. Um, So this is kind of the way that we've been uh, working on our fundraising efforts and trying to bring more awareness to the drought. Uh, What we're trying to work on now is kind of bringing that information to the politicians, um, to our public, so that this issue can be one that's recognized by the Canadian people as a whole. I I wonder, Hibak, obviously there are the twin crises in Somalia of climate change and drought but also the insurgency that has gone on for so many years. I wonder which one of those you think is is the worst for the country, or maybe they're both linked. They are very much linked. I think if we had a more stable country in place and government, then we would be able to kind of put more investments into having uh, more infrastructure in place to kind of deal with the droughts and famine um, and looking into ways to mitigate future droughts and famine through interventions and preparedness that currently we're not able to really focus on as much as we would hope. So you heard Hebeck agree that the insurgency and climate change are linked. Now here is a concrete example. For decades, Al-Shabaab has profited from illegal deforestation and charcoal production, using the profits to fund its violent insurgency. And that deforestation has worsened drought conditions, a vicious cycle with no end in sight. Now, my next guest is focused on climate solutions in Somalia that account for all of those causes. Hassan Yassin is executive director of the Somalia Greenpeace Association. It's a nonprofit that's not affiliated with Greenpeace International. We reached him in Mogadishu in the evening, his time, with the bustle of cars honking and his child playing in the background. 
Hassan Yassin, hello. Hello. Can you tell me, first of all, how have drought and climate change affected the cost of living in Somalia? Thank you, Laura. Uh, climate change has indeed impacted Somalia, especially the drought. Now the cost of local food prices have gone up. And what I can say, the prices have doubled due to shortages of most of legumes the Somali people consume. The food prices which have gone uh, included the maize, the sorghum, the beans, and the soya beans, which most of the Somalia consumes. The other thing which have also gone high is about the animal products, especially the meat and the milk, which the Somali people uses. For the estimation that we have had, there are more than 600,000 livestock which have lost their lives. Apart from the food prices, it has also affected the other livelihoods indirectly. What has gone up is about the rents of the house rents. What has also gone up increased is about also the school fees have been affected indirectly by the droughts. So everything is going up in price. I wonder how, how has all of this affected you and your family? Uh, for the past three months, we used to buy the food items. But now the cost we are buying with that, the same item has doubled. It's also affecting me that for my rent, it has been increased by 10%. What has also increased now is about even my local transportation has increased. So this is now even I am feeling the impact from my bucket. Does that does that mean that that perhaps you you are struggling to feed your family? We are making endless meat. Uh, we are struggling, but things are expensive now in Somalia. I, I wonder, Hassan. We're talking about uh, people and families like yourself who who live in Mogadishu, and and we also know there are many many Somalians who are in rural areas and living or living in refugee camps, how are people coping? They are living more difficult than the people live in uh, urban areas. Even in the urban centers, we have more IDPs than the rural areas. Internally displaced are, persons. Which do not internally displaced peoples. That's why I always advocate for before they get displaced. Those people living in rural areas, their resilience should be built, should be strengthened. Their climate adaptation should be programmed earlier so that they don't get displaced. So th this is quite a picture you're painting. You're talking about the people living in cities, the costs are going up, the people who are living in the refugee camps like Baidoa who are having just such a hard time in addition to everything else. How important is the money that Somalians are sending back to Somalia from abroad? How important are they for low-income Somalians? For the Somalia diaspora, they have been very supportive for the past 30 years. During the internal conflict, during many drought seasons, and even the current. They have been very supportive in terms that the money that they were sending were feeding millions of Households in Somalia. I am one of those individuals who got the benefit that some of their guardians are in abroad. Literally, they used to send that money to my grandmom, and my grandmom used to spend that money to pay some of my education fees. Their money is doing a lot to the contribution and economic in Somalia. But you're also looking for international financial help. And you attended the COP27 yes. meetings in Egypt in November. What were you hoping to get from that? For our participation in COP27 as civil society organizations, the first thing that we had in was to give the voices of the Somalia people. He says he and other climate activists from Somalia went to the COP27 climate change conference advocating money as one answer to deal with the fallout of global warming they're experiencing. Emissions from the global north are hitting the global south more severely. They were not alone in asking for this so-called loss and damage finance. Wealthier nations have promised to provide it. 
But Hassan says he wanted to see more money for adaptation, and that didn't happen. Still, he's hopeful the funding from international donors will come. This money could be a potential change to Somalia. But if it is used as a traditional way, just providing as an emergency support, then that money will not be helpful in the future. Hassan says to make farmers more resilient, they need to look beyond emergency support to the long term. He's got a lengthy wish list. It includes building wells, harnessing solar power and using biofuels. There's also a need, he says, for machines to help with tilling the soil and perhaps employing crop rotation and for holding water and dams to be used when it's needed. And finally, giving people more knowledge about how to use nature-based solutions in farming. Like they can be taught on what they can do so that they themselves can adapt to what's happening. You've been working on, on environment and climate change issues. You've been in this association since 2019. I, I wonder how difficult it is for you to get Somalians um, and the Somalian government to pay attention to this issue with all of the other enormous challenges the country is facing. Initially, it was quite challenging when we started this association, even with the local civil societies having less knowledge and reluctant when we are doing our campaigns of uh, planting trees, addressing climate issues. People were laughing at us. They were saying that you guys, you are jobless and you are doing uh, nothing for good. But we told them this is something very serious. But now as time came from 2020, People have came to realize and they came together addressing the same issues. Uh, we encourage young people to participate uh, climate issues and see as an agenda issue for the country. Now we are in a point when the president speaks, he speaks about at least one of the issues, which is climate change. So our campaign has worked. Uh, the only now gaps that we are missing now is about we need funding support from both the government, the international organizations, and other willing donors to support us, not working silos, but working together to address the common issues. All right. Hassan Yassin, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Laura. Nice meeting you. A battle is brewing over the global fate of the ocean floor and the deadline to make a decision is only six months away. A Vancouver company is pushing to be the first to mine in the deep sea, arguing the critical minerals on the ocean floor are needed for the energy transition. But recently, the French Parliament voted to join a growing number of countries calling for a moratorium on deep sea mining. Science reporter Lisa Johnson has been following this issue for CBC News. And she joins me now to talk about what it means. Hi, Lisa. Hello, Laura. So let's start with the deadline. People have been talking about mining the ocean floor for such a long time. Why is this heating up now? Well, there is a demand for more critical minerals, like you said, for electric vehicle batteries and solar panels and so on. And on parts of the ocean floor, deep down, like four to six kilometers below the surface, there are areas that are covered with these potato-sized rocks called polymetallic nodules, and they, are, they have a lot of those metals, so cobalt, copper, manganese, nickel. And companies, including the metals company out of Vancouver, want to be allowed to mine them commercially. That company was already doing trial runs last fall. But deep sea mining has never been allowed before, and that's where this deadline comes in. These deep sea areas are outside of national jurisdiction. They're regulated by a body called the International Seabed Authority that was set up by a treaty, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea back in 1994. And at the time, a clause was put in the treaty that said, if a country gave notice that it wanted to start seabed mining, the authority had two years to create regulations for it. 
And now, Laura, that clock is ticking. The tiny Pacific island of Nauru triggered that provision in 2021. It partnered with the metals company, and it would earn royalties from the mining. So the Seabed Authority has until July 9th, 2023, to establish regulations or, quote, consider and provisionally approve mining anyway. So interesting that, that this provision is causing this kind of an upset now and a deadline. But we also, as we know, have countries like France and others that are calling for a moratorium. What, what does that do to the process? Well, Laura, it's complicated. There is definitely growing opposition. The French National Assembly has just voted to support a moratorium, which is not one of the options laid out in the treaty. The treaty is all about how mining happens, not if mining happens. Uh, At negotiations last fall, France made the case that the world has changed since the treaty came into effect almost 30 years ago. And with climate change, with the collapse of biodiversity, mining, they argue, shouldn't go ahead. Um, There are others in that camp, Germany, Spain, New Zealand, Fiji. Chile wants a precautionary pause of 15 years so that scientists can better understand what the impacts will be. But even with all this opposition, it's not totally clear what that means for mining going ahead. Not one country can't just veto what's going on. There are 168 members of the International Seabed Authority, and other countries, including Canada, are still working towards hammering out these regulations for mining for the July deadline. If they don't come to an agreement, decisions at the Seabed Authority are made by a two-thirds majority of nations. So that suggests it depends how large the opposition grows. Then, whether they create regulations by the deadline or not, there is still some confusion about what happens next. Do the countries have to, quote, provisionally approve any mining application or can they consider it and then say no? This has never happened before, so it's hard to say how that will go. Uh, There are differing opinions of interpreting this treaty, but the metals company in Vancouver has told investors it's still intending to start mining by 2024. It's interesting, Lisa, because I saw the person who was in charge of the metals company, at least back in 2019, talk about this not as mining. He didn't want to call it mining. He called it harvesting. And I'm wondering what lives in these areas that people are concerned about that might cause people to choose their language so carefully. Well, a big issue is that we don't know a lot about these ecosystems. They're cold and deep and dark and very high pressure being so far down. Um, The zone where mining is proposed is called the Clarion-Clipperton zone between Mexico and Hawaii. And when scientists have had a chance to explore it, Laura, the pictures are otherworldly. There's ghostly-looking sea cucumbers and other kinds of invertebrates. There isn't a lot of biomass, like not a lot of stuff down there. So the company that wants to mine them has described the area as sort of a barren desert. But the scientists who study it are championing the biodiversity that's down there, because every time they go looking, they find species that have never been discovered before. All right. Whether you call it mining or harvesting, what would this kind of activity do to it? Okay, so mining would mean a remote operated vehicle on the seafloor suctioning things up and take a slurry of the polymetallic nodules and separate them from the sediment in the water that was sucked up as well. The rocks would be carried up to the surface, and then the sediment would be released back into the water. So in terms of the immediate area, like where the rocks are taken, anything that relies on the polymetallic nodules like to attach to the seafloor that's otherwise pretty soft, those homes would be gone. The polymetallic nodules grow, scientists estimate, only a few millimeters in a million years. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So if you take them away, they're not growing back this century or millennium. And going through the scientific literature on this, that is not debated. What's more uncertain is the broader impact beyond the exact point of mining. So there will also be sediment plumes in the water. There will also be noise that would travel and could disturb creatures much farther away. So scientists are still studying how big those impacts are. And the big debate here is going to be, are they worth it? Of course. Now, we know there is going to be more demand for these minerals. So... Is it needed? Are these minerals that are in the ocean actually needed? So the people who want to mine it say, yes, absolutely. The CEO of the metals company calls these nodules a battery in a rock and has made the case that we cannot afford to say no to ocean mining and create the rapid energy transition that is needed. But an analysis from the Institute of Sustainable Futures said, no, even though we will definitely need more of these metals, there is enough on land to meet demand. Now, 
we know, you've covered before on the show, those mines on land obviously have their own problems, environmental impact and human rights. But the people calling for a moratorium say, focus the effort on fixing that, not opening up a new part of the planet to mining. All right, Lisa, what is there to watch for next? The Council of the International Seabed Authority, which includes Canada, will meet again in March to keep working on the mining regulations. And in the meantime, I think we can expect to see more pressure in the public realm on this. Um, There's even a protest march planned for Vancouver next weekend. All right, Lisa, we'll keep an eye on this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Time for just a quick update on some news in climate this week. The normally icy Gulf of St. Lawrence isn't as frigid as it used to be. The ice is covering less than 2% of the Gulf, meaning it could break the low ice record for the second time in three years. The 30-year average is closer to 25% of the water being covered by sea ice in late January. The first report is out from the group tasked with holding the federal government accountable for its actions on achieving emissions targets. The Net Zero Advisory Body is a panel of industry, academic and other specialists in climate change appointed by Ottawa. One of its recommendations? That the Department of Environment and Climate Change should step up its reporting on the country's emissions. Right now, there's a two-year lag. The report says the emissions should be up to date and released quarterly as in the European Union. It's an issue we covered last year on the program. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. On next week's program, Northern Canada is warming faster than the rest of the country. But while people in the North face more extreme weather and other climate impacts, Some say there's not enough data to accurately forecast the daily weather. So these communities tend to be the most remote. They tend to be often flying communities. And flying communities are very reliant on having reliable weather forecasts for the aircraft, usually coming from the south into those communities to bring in things like food, to get people in and out for hospital flights, things like that. And so when there's a lack of reliable meteorological observations in those areas. You have operators of these aircraft having to make decisions to, say, cancel flights because they don't know what's going on. And we'll hear how people are trying to fill in the gaps and how the federal government could act to help people in the north stay safe today and prepare for the climate of the future. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Daniel Piper and Kiernan Green, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.